All right, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. So as we begin our reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when I was in school learning how to head different kinds of letters that you would write. We learned how to do headings for a business letter. There were places, certain spots where you put your own information, your own address, and your own name and that. And then another spot where you put who it's to. And and then we also learned uh, personal headings as well. How to write a personal letter to somebody. And just went through several categories of different kinds of letters and how the headings would vary or differ uh, one from another. Well, as we come into 1 Thessalonians here this morning and start at the very beginning, that's what we run into right off the bat. The Apostle Paul and these other guys with him, Silvanus and Timothy, they're writing a letter to the Thessalonian church. And you see kind of the just the beginning, the heading for the letter. Now, many of the parts of the, the heading are very common. This was a common way to do it. You would put who the letter is from. And with that, we see three names. Paul, Silvanus. Actually, Silvanus is the Greek form of the name Silas. And so the Silas that you read about in other places in the Bible, he was the main companion of Paul on his second missionary journey. He was arrested with Paul and he was a very committed individual to Christ. Um, That's the same guy. And so you see the names Paul, Silas, Timothy. That comprises part of the heading of the letter. The second part of it is who it's to. And we see that that's to the church of the Thessalonians, then you also have some kind of a greeting. We don't want to just brush right over this stuff, because even though it is just kind of a typical greeting, there's uh, one thing that's a little bit different about it, and there's one thing that's very much the same. And in both of those things, we can learn a little bit of a lesson. right? The one thing that's different is that the Apostle Paul, in almost every letter, in fact, every letter except for the two letters written to this church, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, and the letter written to the Philippians, which are they're geographically close. They're all in Macedonia. Other than that, all of Paul's letters, he addresses it as being from the Apostle Paul. He always mentions the fact that he's an Apostle. In these three letters, he just says Paul. Paul and Silas and Timothy. Well, why? Why would he do that? It does seem that, I think it's a tribute to the Thessalonians actually that he's able to do that because in a lot of his other letters, he actually had to kind of stand up for his apostleship. In some of his letters that are more correcting, he had to kind of stand on the authority of his apostleship to correct those people in the different mistakes that they were making in their Christian life or the different sins that they were participating in. So in a lot of churches, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote a letter to him, he would list himself as the apostle to kind of establish and speak from the authority that he had, which was given by Christ as an apostle. And so when we look at the Thessalonians and recognize that in both of their letters, even though there's a little bit of correction here and there, Neither of their letters do we see any sign of his apostleship, his authority as an apostle being challenged. And that speaks well of them in the midst of many other letters where he needed to give that warning. But then also, in the way that it's the same, the Apostle Paul in all of his letters, he also always 
wishes them grace and peace. They're always in the same order. Grace is always first and peace is always second. And I think what is meaningful about that is that grace is actually the, the basis for peace. It's because of God's grace in wanting to give us a blessing that we don't deserve, God looking upon us with favor that we haven't earned, because of God's grace, He established peace in our life. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us, through which we can have peace with God. So God established peace with us, drawing mankind to Himself through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of His grace. The Thessalonians were doing well. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to them, he, he encourages them, he strengthens them, he's so glad that they're doing well in their faith. This is a real bright point in his ministry. When you look back in Acts chapter 17, you find his ministry to them and went to the synagogues first and began to preach the gospel, and many people believed. Some of the Jewish people believed, some of the Gentile converts believed. It says uh, many uh, notable women believed, and the church was founded in Thessalonica. The Jewish people that did not believe got upset with that, got jealous over that, and so they kind of hired a bunch of uh, oh, people that would do things like we've seen in the last couple of years, <laughs> burn things and, and destroy things and stuff like that, and started a riot to try to cause problems for this new faith and for the, the church that was being started there. And, and so, so much so that they, the church kind of took Paul and said, let's get you out of here, and they kind of escorted, got him safely commuted outside of town and got him out of there. But the church in Thessalonica, even though they were going through that kind of an atmosphere, they were growing and doing well. They were commended for their faith, their love, and their hope. They went early from being an imitator of the Apostle Paul, being an imitator of Christ, to be an example for others to follow. And so they were somebody that had a lot of success in their Christian life. And that's what we're considering here this morning as he starts delving into it right away is the success that they had in their Christian life. Now, as we look at the passage here this morning, I'm seeing two things unfold. The first thing that I see unfold is their positioning. They were positioned well for success. As you look at people, what helps people to grow in their faith? What helps people to grow in their relationship with God? There's definitely a divine element to it. It's God that works in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And actually, verse 4 deals with that. We'll be digging into that a little deeper beginning next week. There's also human things that deal with it as well. Our response to the things that God leads us into. Our response to trials and temptations. How we respond to those things. How we use the different tools that God has given to us. And I think that right in the very beginning verses, we can see that these people were positioned well to grow in their faith. To experience some success in their Christian life. Right off the bat, as we look at some of these opening statements, I see that they're in a good place that would encourage growth. You want to know why? Because they're in the church. This letter is written to the church. What is it about the church that is going to be good for them to grow in? One is their fellowship, one with another, because they're they're meeting together regularly to be an encouragement and a strengthening of one another. These are a group of people that are going to have a lot of things available to them through the church and experience things that are going to promote their Christian growth. 
And so they're in a good place. They're positioned themselves well to grow in their faith in Christ. What would being involved in the church there avail to them? Well, one thing that ought to catch our attention right off the bat is they're going to be there to hear this letter read. <laughs> they're going to get to receive this letter from the Apostle Paul. In fact, they're going to receive two of them over time. And their letters are going to be read and they're going to be studied and they're going to be learned and they're going to be encouraged by that and they're going to be able to grow by that. Also within this passage, what do we see the Apostle Paul mention? The fact that he's praying for them. And that he's praying for all of them. And he's praying for all of them continually, consistently. And by being a part of that church, they have the Apostle Paul praying for them as well. You know, when you think about it, just your presence here coming and being a part and, and getting to know the people that are around you, trying to be an encouragement to the other people around you, that puts you in a great place for Christian growth. Because one, we never grow better than when we're actually trying to be a benefit to somebody else. It's when we lose sight of ourselves and we focus on being an encouragement to others that we grow the most. It also puts us in a place where we consistently hear the truth of the Word of God and we dig into His Word and see how to apply it to our lives. It's a place where we participate together in worship. And that is encouraging and strengthening as well. And all the different ways that we and the things that we do here give us a boost, give us, a, give us help. And you know what? If we're not regularly, consistently here. I'm not saying that there's not ever a time to miss church. Absolutely, things roll that way sometimes. But you know what? The less we miss, the greater opportunities we get to be involved in. You know, over the years, I've noticed a few things in the ministry. <clears throat> One is, there's a lot of times when I've had parents come and say, you know what? My kids are asking me questions about this. How do I answer them? And don't get me wrong, I love to answer those questions. and I love to have those discussions. And I like to get involved that way. But you know what I found to be so common? So common when I have a parent comes up to me and says, you know what, my kids are asking me these kind of questions. How do I answer them? Very commonly, the thing out of my mouth is, you know, boy, I wish they had been in youth group. We just spent like four weeks talking about that. Very common. I think it's rude for a pastor to direct a sermon at anybody. I think that public things ought to be handled publicly and private things ought to be handled privately. But you know, one of the things that I found over the years is, Lots of people have come up and said, I think you were talking to me today. And I say, no, no, <laughs> we, we're preaching right through this series. I, I hope I was talking to you. And, it, and it's amazing to me sometimes the, the people that walk in the door at a sermon that, that, is, that they tell me is just, man, that is exactly what I needed today. I had no clue what they needed. Only God knows that. But you know what? I will tell you this. Over the years of preparing messages and, and preaching, there is a lot of times where because... I am a pastor. I'm a shepherd. I do know some things that are going on in people's lives. There's a lot of times where I'm studying a passage. And like I said, I avoid like the plague directing it toward any individual. But there's times where I'm reading through, studying through a passage, and I think, man, this information is great for just what they're going through in their life. They're going to be so encouraged by this. They're going to be, this is going to open some doors for them. This is going to unlock something for them. You know what? And when I start to have those thoughts, you know what I do? I say, I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to focus on the text. You want to know why? Because those people are almost never there. They're almost never there. How do I interpret that? I, I don't know. On the one hand, I could say, I'm not God. And so I don't really know what they need and God does. So maybe that's it. That could be the case. I'm very well familiar with the fact that I'm not God. But at the same time, uh, He does have me here as a pastor, which is a shepherd, which is supposed to kind of have a little bit of insight into what's helpful to people. So hopefully I have a little bit of understanding about that. The sad part that I do see is a lot of times when we're not getting just what we need, it might be because we're not positioning ourselves in the right place to get it. This letter is addressed 
to the church. And the church was going to be gathered together for the reading of this letter. And they would continue to learn from the studying of this letter. And they were under the blessing of the, the, the Apostle Paul and these other men, godly men, praying for them. And they were in a good place. They had themselves positioned well to grow in their faith. We gotta think about that because if we find ourselves saying, you know what, I wish I was stronger in my Christian life. I wish I knew more about the Bible. I wish I was better at praying. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. Maybe we don't have ourselves positioned in the right place to be able to succeed. Maybe we're not in with other people as much as we should be. Maybe some of the struggles that we're having in our life are because we're not putting ourselves in the environments and rubbing shoulders with the people that would help us in overcoming those struggles or that we could help in overcoming them as well. Not only that, but we also find in the statement that he made there about the church, he says, the church of the Thessalonians, notice a little phrase, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we actually are in Him. We are in the Father. We are in Christ. It's in Christ that we receive the forgiveness of sins. It's in Christ that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's in Christ that we overcome the temptations and the struggles in our life. It's all from starts with us being in Christ. And that's what he identifies this church of the Thessalonians as being in God the Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the place that that stands out the clearest, I think, is in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now you're going to notice as we read down through this passage that the words in Christ or through Him, in the Beloved, are going to keep coming up over and over and over. It's the theme of the entire book of Ephesians is being us being in Christ and then how to flesh that out in our lives. But he talked about us being... Uh, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood." the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And that's the longest sentence in the Bible. And in that one long sentence, what do we find? That everything that we have is in Christ. Colossians, the Apostle Paul would put it much simpler. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. These Thessalonians were positioned well to succeed in their Christian life. They were in Christ They put their faith in Him. They were part of the church that was identified as being in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. 
These are people that were in church, participating with one another, receiving the Word of God and studying it together, being an encouragement and praying for one another and under the blessing of the Apostle Paul's prayer for them as well. Well, then he also goes to not only the position for success, but also elements of success. He says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we took a little bit of time last week tracing those three words through the book of 1 Thessalonians and other books. We noticed that the Apostle Paul always evaluates churches and people by these three characteristics. Faith, love, and hope. In fact, as you look through the letter of Thessalonians, it's there from beginning to end. He starts off being encouraged and praying and thanking God for their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Then he goes on and talks about how they were separated from them and wanting to know how they were doing in their faith and in their love and in their hope. And when he couldn't stand it any longer, he sent Timothy to go find out how they were doing. And Timothy in their faith. And then Timothy comes back and and gives them a report and says they're doing great in their faith and in their love. And then he gives them a little bit of a better understanding about some questions they had about their hope so that they would see it a little bit more clearly and understand it better. And then right toward the end of the book, he says in chapter 5 and verse 8, "...but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." And so he begins in being encouraged by their faith, their love, and their hope, and he ends wishing upon them some more growth in their faith and their love and their hope. And even right in the middle, when you get in that letter, even after he hears the report of Timothy, how they're doing so well in their faith and their love, the Apostle Paul says, you know what, I still want to come and see you because I would like to be involved in fulfilling what may be lacking in your faith. So even though they were doing good in their faith, he knew they could still grow some more and he could be used to do that. And so he still wanted to get in there and help them. Well, the elements of success in our Christian life are no different than the elements of success in theirs. Is how are we doing in these three things? How are we doing in our faith before God, in our love for God and others, and in our hope with one another? In First Thessalonians chapter 1, in verses 4 and 5, he says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see what's happening here is the Apostle Paul is looking at the church and he's super encouraged. And why, why is he encouraged? He says, we, can, we know that you've been chosen by God. That's the divine element that we're going to focus more on next week and dig into that. He says, we know that God has chosen you. How does he know that God has chosen them? He says, because when our Gospel came, it didn't come uh, just in words. It came in power. How could he see that power? Because of their changed life. He can see the power in their changed life. And what was the change that took place in their life? He describes it with three words. Work, labor, and steadfastness. Alright, but what do work, labor, and steadfastness indicate? And he says, you know what those indicate? Faith, love, and hope. You see, the point is, can you see faith? No. But what you see is the results of faith. Those are very visible. You don't see love, but you can see the results of love. You can see the results of hope. The things that he sees in their life 
that he can see point to something deeper that is unseen and that's what he takes the most encouragement from. And those are the things that we're looking at here today. So the first one of those is faith. He says, what I see is your work of faith. Now, this is not to confuse the issue on what it takes to be saved. The Bible makes it very clear that our salvation is not based on works. That our salvation is based completely on faith. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul also wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 20-28, through 28, he says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so the Bible makes it very clear. Other places that we're very familiar of, Titus chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, talk about us being saved by grace only through faith being uh, saved according to His mercy and not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And all those passages do end up focusing on some works in the end, but make it very clear that our salvation is experienced only through our faith in Christ and not through our works. But yet, at the same time, he would acknowledge, as James does, that there is definitely a relationship between faith and works. In other words, the relationship is that faith works If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you genuinely trust Him, your life will change. And that's what James points out. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You know what? You're saved only by your faith. But there is no such thing as having only faith. Because if you have genuine faith in Christ, that faith will work itself out in your life. You will demonstrate your faith by the things that you say and the things that you do. It will change your life. I remember, as I've told you many times, a pastor from earlier on in my Christian experience used to say, if your faith won't change your life, it won't save your soul either. Because faith works. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here to these Thessalonian believers. He's saying, I know that you're a believer. I know that God has chosen you because I can see it in your life. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I just love watching your faith work. But then not only does he focus on faith, he focuses on love as well. And he refers to it as a labor of love, an enduring struggle, hard work. He says, I see that in you. I see because of your love that they have for one another. He says, I can see you working at it. I see you laboring in it. I see you doing things for one another. 
Love is the same way as faith is. You can't have love in your life and not be changed by it. If you love, you're going to be prompted to do a lot of things you wouldn't do otherwise. First John focuses on love a lot. In First John chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, By this it is evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so he just states it plain out. He says, look, it's easy to tell who's born again, who's a Christian. You can see it in their life. He says, you don't, you don't love, then you're not part of God. Why? He'd go on to say, God is love. And so if you love God, you must love. That's God's work within you. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is, is love. In fact, earlier he calls him on it. He says, look, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, he says, you're a liar. He says, how can you love the one that you can't see without loving the one that you can see? So love, just like faith, is used as a litmus of our, of our salvation. Just like faith, you're going to see that in your life. Love, you're going to see that in your life as well. If you're lacking faith, then you're not a Christian. If you're lacking love, you're not one either. Well, also in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods, yet sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let, us, let, let not our love be just things that we say, but let's let our love be things that we do. And then lastly, he points to hope. As they, were, as they were having success in their Christian life, and this is the one that if any of them, they may have been struggling with, as it looks, he gives them some encouragement, some instruction concerning their hope in the, la- in the latter chapters. But hope. Now this one changes. Like the first two, faith and love, very similar words. Work, labor, pretty much very similar. Hope, he says, what is it? Steadfastness. You know, that's what hope does. Hope encourages us to keep on going. Hope encourages us to hang in there. To press on. That's what hope does in our life. And that's as he, as he ends up focusing, going into the latter chapters of the book, he focuses on the return of Christ and, and his coming back for us and using that to encourage them so that they can continue to hold on under persecution. They continue to hold on and grow in their faith, grow in their love because of the hope that they have in Christ. I remember counseling classes and stuff that I took back when I was in college. They told you, as a counselor, your very first job is to instill hope. Why? Because hope is what gives you the ability to keep coming back for more. Hope is what gives you the ability to find a way to make something work, to overcome difficulties, to hang in there when things are tough. Whether you're dealing with hard circumstances or hard people, hope is what will get you through those things. It's not just a platitude. It's not just a finding a way to give them a warm fuzzy before they go out the door. It's a reality. Because the reality is there is always hope in Christ. It doesn't matter what your circumstance is or what your situation is. There is always hope in Christ. And so hope is exactly what we should be trying to give people that are feeling discouraged. It's not just trying to make something look rosy that is horrible. It is that there is actually hope to be had. What shape were the apostles in when Christ went to the cross? They were scared. They were discouraged. They were ready to go back to their old life, go back to fishing, and they were turning away. But then they saw the resurrected Christ, and there's no turning back from that point on. Why? Because now their whole worldview is different. 
They would be hunted and they would be persecuted, but they would hang on. And why would they hang on? Because they know Christ is coming back. And they know that we win in the end. Completely different outcome. Forsake Christ and go back to your old way of life or press on. It all depended on whether they had hope. And you know what? Our hope is not found in this life. Our hope is uh, anchored in the next. Our hope is looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes back and returns for us. And that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what we're hoping on. The word hope doesn't mean a maybe it will happen. It means a, a confident expectation. We know that it's going to happen and we're hanging on for that day. The great example is the Apostle Paul himself as he'd write his last words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved His appearing. You see, he actually doesn't use the word hope through either of these verses, but he expresses it through both of them. These people succeeded very well in their Christian life. Why? Because of these two things. One, they positioned themselves well to succeed. They were in the system that God put together for their encouragement and for their growth. It's called the church. And they also have the elements of success in their life as they were had grown and would continue to grow in this faith, love, and hope.